Hello and welcome to The Pseudo Show. I'm your host this week, Justin Edwards. And as always, you can find out how you can support us at sunriserobot.net slash support. So hello and welcome to The Pseudo Show. I'm your host, Justin Edwards, and with me today is an old friend. He's been on the podcast before, actually, in The Pseudo Show episode one. His name is Adam McCabe. Say hello. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Good. Um, thanks for coming on. I, we've been trying to kind of grab you the last few months here to get you on here. Just, you know, we always like getting people on who are creative people talking about their processes and how they became such people and how they continue doing that. Um, so to get started, why don't we, um, I know you from a, a job we had once upon a time um, yeah. a few years ago. We were both PAs for this this company in Los Angeles and they kind of sent us around town on errands for a bunch of people. In the meantime, it was just kind of a great way for us to pay the bills while we kept pursuing our creative yeah. endeavors. I originally started on that company as a favor to two other friends who worked there, and they were getting bigger, uh, bigger like offers outside of work as far as like directing and writing goes. Uh, and they said, would you fill in for me? And I said, sure. So I just showed up. I wasn't an employee, and I showed up. And casually did that for six months and then one day it was like hey i pop in now and then uh, i've popped in now and then for six months am i an employee and they're like i guess so it's like <laughs> they didn't even know so uh yeah we worked there and luckily i got to meet justin it was the good thing that came out of that and then we both moved on yes i think uh it, it gave us great inspiration for what we didn't want to do for the rest of our lives if anything yeah you sh- should definitely do something you really don't want to do for any certain amount of time to learn how much you want to work hard at what you want to do very good um and so speaking of how do you describe yourself what do you do uh i'm an actor a writer and a teacher I act in commercials, television, and films. Oh. Most notably, Justin Edwards' Detective, Detective, Detective. Sorry, it's a hard title. Almost made it, yeah. And uh, I write. I've written for television. Uh, I've written for... uh, I've written commercials. I've written internet content. I've written all of that. And uh, I am a teacher. I teach improv and sketch comedy at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in Los Angeles. Fantastic, yes. So he, Adam, was um, Detective Morocco in the the film I made last year, and he is a big big hit. You know, we we've had some fun with that too, and we've been in festivals for the past year. You were able to make it out to one of those kind of a, a legendary weekend in Salt Lake City. I made it out to two. Oh, I yeah. made it to the Philadelphia That's Film right. Festival and to Salt Lake City. Yeah, and uh, the premiere. So I, I've been at four screenings of the film cool yeah and i think you know through that process um we learned a lot about each other and kind of you know whenever you go through any kind of i wouldn't say like shooting in alaska was an intense experience but like it was kind of in the gutter of just filmmaking for a month straight and you know you get to know each other and kind of have an experience that kind of can bond you going forward but why don't we back up a bit and just you know tell us about about your um kind of your upbringing where you where you come from and what kind of interested you into pursuing kind of this path you're on now, acting, writing? Sure. Um, as a kid growing up, I always liked comedies. Um, they were always my favorite. Uh, and I just watched comedies with my dad, old John Candy movies, stuff like Ghostbusters I loved. Uh, comedy, man, it just it worked for me, comedy and action. And then growing up, 
being a kid who was a little different from everyone else, you develop a sense of humor as a defense mechanism. And that's how I made friends was by being funny. Uh, so that's how I hung out with the popular kids who took care of me. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like my friends were like the strongest, toughest kids in school. So they'd watch out for me cause I was their silly, goofy buddy. Mm-hmm. Um, so then at a young age, I got into theater as well. So I was growing up, I, I loved comedies. I loved doing like improv in school, I did improv in high school and I did theater and I started doing local plays and I saw that whenever I did a play, like I would get a good response from the audience. I'd get like big laughs. And then when I did improv, I was getting, you know, decent amount of laughs. So I was like, Oh, okay, I can do this. Like I do this. All right. So maybe I should figure out how to do it the right way. Um, so out of high school, I'm now into college and I'm doing uh, comedy sports, which is, which is a short form improv comedy. That is a, uh, it's a franchise. So they have comedy sports all over the country. And I was in comedy sports Bakersfield, which is my hometown. After doing that for a while, I splintered off and started doing long form. And uh, from that long form, I got into UCB, which had moved out to LA in 2005. And I started going to shows, started studying there. And uh, I've been at UCB since 2006. So there I started studying long form improv and sketch writing as well. Meanwhile, in my hometown, for a, uh, I worked for Clear Channel as a radio DJ, and we had a comedy variety hour, which we were told by the program director you could do anything you want. Hmm. So this is really rare for two reasons. One, it's a major company like Clear Channel, a corporation, paying us to make content like that. Two, it was a huge throwback to like the golden era of radio comedy. Mm-hmm. It was like when people would gather around the uh, gather around the radio and as a family listen like the Jack Benny program or anything like that. Steve Allen. Where it's like, uh, oh, this is just an hour of bits that are planned out and beat it out, but just very much off the cuff and kind of rift. We had guests come in um, to play characters. We had like all of that. It was an old fashioned area. And in between those bits, we would play a couple songs because mm-hmm. it's a rock channel. So we had to. And uh, man, props to uh, Danny at Crab and Crab Radio. KRAB 106.1 Crab Radio, your new rock alternative. Uh, for having the balls to let three idiots do a comedy show like that. From that, we wrote jokes for the Morning Zoo Crew show. Mm-hmm. So we wrote a ton of like tongue-in-cheek bits for a zoo crew to do that they did earnestly because that's who they are and that's their show. So we love doing that. They had us write and direct sketches for their cable access TV show. So then in my early 20s, I, I'd say I'm like 22, 23 at this point, I'm writing, directing, and starring in sketch comedy for cable access. And that's great. That's amazing. So I had that very, like, um, you know, backyard, shooting a sketch in a backyard, having it edited, putting it up. Only this time, instead of being on a VHS tape, it was going out to anyone in the town who could pick up that station. It was going out. So that was my kind of, like, grassroots intro DIY into getting sketch comedy out there. And uh, I learned how to do it from doing that and uh moved to la and started doing it and that's what i do now did any of those um people you worked with back then come out with you or you just yeah uh we were a comedy group called blacklist uh and the last iteration of us is three of us and we're the ones who did the tv show and the radio show uh and one of them robert chan my oldest friend he uh says me robert chan and a guy named mike armanderas uh we were in Bakersfield and Chan's like, we can't do any more in Bakersfield. Mm-hmm. Like we, we wrote a TV show. We had a radio show. We had a sold out monthly show at a theater. We can't do any more. Do we want to progress as people? 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> then we should move somewhere and try to like really, you know, claw our way up there, like start over again, essentially, which is scary, like to be like, uh, I don't know, you're so comfortable in your small town. It is so easy to stay and be like, oh, I'll, I'll try to be a big fish in a small pond. Yeah, exactly. Uh, without sounding like big headed or anything. It's like, no, we accomplished a lot of what we wanted here. So the next logical move is to try to do it elsewhere. That's the mark of success to me is you've proven you can do it where you're from. Now try to do it elsewhere and be successful at it. So um, because of circumstances, it was just uh, Chan and I who came to, uh, we moved to LA, we rode couches, we did crap jobs, and we kept keeping at it until we were able to sustain ourselves by doing comedy. Um, yeah, so two of us came out together. And Great. I try to include him in my stuff whenever I can, still to this day. Yeah. I'll put him in shows or sketches when I film him. Mm-hmm. Is he a UCB guy too? Or uh, He was. He took all the classes. He got on a, uh, they have house improv teams called Herald Teams. He and I got on a Herald team the same year. So that was cool to move here together and get on that team the same year together. Mm-hmm. You mentioned kind of John Candy, early movies, 80s comedies. Yeah. Um, is there anybody like you really like hero that you look up to like, hey, that was my guy. And I wanted, you know, early on, I wanted to be like him. Or... Yeah. Um, when I was a kid, kid, it was Jim Carrey because like Ace Ventura and The Mask. The right. Mask was such a big movie for me. Dumb and Dumber was hilarious. Um, but then I like started falling in love with like performances like Steve Martin and three amigos is so funny to me. There are a lot of great Steve Martin roles, uh, planes, mm-hmm. trains and automobiles, having Steve Martin and John Candy together. Wow, yeah. And like being a kid and starting to recognize differences in style was a, that was a big influence to me. It's mm-hmm. like subtlety and like kind of over the top performance and just gauging, well, what kind of comedian am I? And I used to be very big in a in a Chris Farley esque way. I love like big characters, really loud, fast, hard. Yeah. And then as I've gotten older, I've kind of changed more to what I would call that kind of Steve Martin approach, where uh, I like being absurd but very grounded. It's mm-hmm. like the more absurd I get, the more I work to ground it. Exactly. Yeah, and I can see how that I feel too. His approach is. That's great. That's my approach. Um, I recently just watched Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I mean, I feel like I'd seen parts of it on and off for years, but I don't think I ever sat down and actually watch it yeah. today, not as a kid, to like really, really get it. And I, you know, super impressed. I think this is probably last fall sometime. Um, but now today, as a writer going into it, knowing that like you, here you're working with these two hilarious comedic actors, but playing series and automobiles, I mean, it's a very, it's a straightforward drama that we laugh at. Yeah. Like for those characters, though, it's very serious situations, especially what ends up coming out of yeah know, the truth at the end of the yeah film. when john candy says what he's actually up to and you know kind of just looking for a friend you know or, or kind of happen happening upon one um but like it, it's nice to get to revisit those and kind of go back and recognize um as storytellers too and going like there's more going on here than just <coughs> funny bits haha look yeah. like they're stuck in the airplane now and now they're stuck on the train you know and like all the different scenarios they come up with, which was great. And getting to see Steve Martin just totally lose it, especially in that rental car lot. Um, Uh, And I mean, that's growing up and being able to appreciate it as a kid for one reason and appreciate it as an adult for another. And that's why storytelling is so interesting to me is that it can, you read it or watch it as a child. It has one effect on you as opposed to when you're older and you change mm -hmm. your view on it completely. A moment like that happened recently for me in back to the future. I rewatched it recently as an adult and there's a scene that is dialogue less where Marty comes back 
and uh, Doc is shot by the Libyans, and he think he he thinks he missed it. He thinks he messed up. Mm-hmm. And Doc sits up. He's got the vest. He's like, Doc, no. And he pulls out the letter that he said, you know, don't read this. And he pulls out the letter, and he smiles, and they smile at each other, and then it moves on. And when I watched as an adult, I started to tear up. I was like, they love each other. They're like such good friends. They do love each other and care about each other that much. That Like this silent moment exchange between them meant so much to me. Mm-hmm. I never picked up on that as a kid. Like that scene didn't hit me as hard. Yeah, definitely great. Yeah, it's always kind of curious to see kind of where we, we come from and coming to a new place. Because now we can visit those movies and go like, oh, that's actually kind of garbage. You know, and like it's funny to kids. But, but today we want to go back and revisit to, I mean, that I feel like that's, all Hollywood does now is to revisit these things and reboot. What did they just announce is getting re? Oh, Kindergarten Cop, Big Trouble in Little China. Getting as well. Big Trouble China's coming back. Um, but it just kind of makes you wonder, like, what did they see lacking in that original, or what are they wanting to bring to it new this time yeah. around? Um, I know, like, the Vacation movie is getting rebooted oh, now. So, did oh. you see the Red Band trailer? I for did. That? Yeah. Holy cow! So. My friend nailed it best. Like, I watched the trailer and. I, Never mind. I shouldn't talk. <laughs> I could be working with someone for one of these films, so I should say. But uh, I'll just say, my friend, uh, someone tweeted out. They put out there if you if you thought that the only that the original vacation was lacking people smearing human feces on themselves to be better, like oh you're gosh. in luck because that's like a huge joke in the trailer, uh-huh. and it's like, oh my god, it's like, and that's what I love about those old vacation movies is the heart. In vacation, the reason he wanted his family to do this is because he wanted them to have an experience he had when he was a child. He wanted them to connect, similar to DDD, yeah. <laughs> uh, the movie we made together. Um, and it's the same thing with like Christmas Vacation. It's like Christmas means so much to this man. It's all about family and bringing people together. And it's like, that's what I love. And it is like, even as a kid, that resonated with me, but more so as an adult. Being an adult and at an age where like I could have kids, like Rusty's age and uh, yeah. Audrey's age, where it's like, Oh man, like, yeah, I can imagine the frustrations of your children pulling away from you and you wanting one last experience where you as a family can all experience something together, which Mm -hmm. you don't get as an adult. And I think that those movies touch that so well, especially that first one. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why his blow up at the end is earned. Mm -hmm. That's why the blow up in planes, trains and automobiles at the desk where he says, I want to, I want a car. You're going to give it a car. (laughs) Like all of that is earned Yeah, because you get that. And I, I feel like so many movies these days miss that. Yeah, they don't earn much at all, I think. Um, which I think is a nice segue into talking about that that writing process. Um, for the listeners out there, Adam and I actually just spent all morning kind of beating out um, a, an outline for a, a show we want to make. Um, and it, it's just kind of fun to get to flex the storytelling writing muscles again in, in a collaboration kind of um, setup. But I, I myself am coming off of, I just taught screenwriting for a year out in Boston, and it's kind of like, there's all these 101 concepts in my head, you know, because you're teaching it to people who have never considered what is storytelling, what is writing, how do yeah. I come up with characters. So I'm like revisiting all of my own writing training I gave myself, or I read in books, or, you know, whatever courses I took, or if I could find from film schools and whatnot but do you have any of that yourself like what's your kind of education in the writing process what did you learn from it's interesting you should say that um because i teach improv and sketch comedy and uh on the improv side of it i teach 101 and 301 
101 is intro to improv, improv basics. Never done improv before. This is your introduction. 301, hey, I've taken two classes. Now I'm learning a form, which is a form that they do called the Herald. Mm -hmm. So it's like a structured improv set. Um, It's a structure to improv. Uh, Framework. Scenes in order. Uh, Yeah, I don't want to get into it too much. But anyway, like you're saying about you teaching 101 and having those in your head, I feel like it's made me a better improviser because, uh, and this goes over to Sketch 101 as well, which is intro to sketch writing, I'm constantly refreshing people on basics, so it helps me as a performer or writer, because I'm constantly saying, here are the things that can make it easier for yourself, so it makes me do them. Mm-hmm. Like, I follow my own rules. I really do play how I teach, and I write how I teach. It's like simplification. There has to be like a reason you're doing it. It's like heart behind everything. Justification is a big part of it. That spills over to my writing. My improv and sketch writing definitely spills over to my long form writing. Mm-hmm. When I work on a pilot or if I work on a, a feature script, uh, each each scene has its own game. It has a start, a start, a middle, and an ending. Each scene should logically heighten in a pattern to where, like, okay, that's that scene fully explored. Start on the next one. That's that scene fully explored. Start on the next one. Everything. So every scene has like a little tiny arc to it. Mm. It's able to move forward. That's how I approach it. This is very basic. Like, what is this scene? What does it need? What's like the game of the scene? If we're telling a certain joke, let's go for that. If we're trying to get like this point across, how do we fully explore that idea in an efficient and interesting way? Mm-hmm. Did you take any um, writing courses in college? Any? I took creative maybe? writing. Okay. So I wrote plays. I did playwriting in college. Uh, it was one class. I never did screenwriting. I've read, I've read Save the Cat. <laughs> I've uh, read a couple of the books that you recommended to me from your class. Not all the way through. I need to finish those. But I've written a ton of like, I've written so many sketch shows with through lines. I've I've like done so many spec pilots for myself where I just like just wrote it to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done the thing where I sat down in a weekend and wrote a feature. I've mm-hmm. done that twice. Mm-hmm. Are they the best? Maybe not, but it taught me how to be better it's like i just learned by doing it and now like having worked together you see like i'm very quick at like pitching and uh as far as like efficiency okay well it should look and feel like this Uh, and then i'm good with joke pitching structure i'm not as best at and it's probably because i haven't taken classes Mm. and i haven't had like a very structured course that said all right well write your act one write your act two so i i probably have structure issues in my stuff but i could tell a story Definitely, and I think you you do tell stories in your performances too. And, and I remember I cast you in our movie, the detective movie, just because I knew you and I knew I had seen Cleve Dixon. Um, and I just wanted to ask you about that briefly too. Like, how did Cleve Dixon come together? Um, and I'll put a link to the show. Yeah, please. Um, people can check it out. But uh, Cleve Dixon is a three episode web series. I sold to Funny or Die. Um, and they produced it and we built a set and shot three episodes of it on a soundstage in one day, uh, which to me is impressive because when you see it, you'll understand how much work went into it. Yeah. Um, really polished. It looks really nice. Oh, everyone who worked on it did a fantastic job. They made me look amazing and it was all their hard work. The lighting is phenomenal. Like if you want to see a great example of, again, not using my writing, not using my acting, but just like a fantastic cast director lighting camera like dp set designer it, it's mm-hmm. the total package as far as that goes yeah, costumes and, and then yeah costumes for too. you i think cleve vixen establishes your voice 
as a writer and your sense of humor and the tone you have is, is so great. That's what kind of attracted me to you for the role in my movie was like, oh, he could be great at this, you know, not just because it was detectives, but go ahead. I'd like to speak a bit about. Sure. The idea came to me. Um, I, I wanted to write a series about my favorite character type is a character who's undeservedly arrogant. That's such a funny character to me. That's such a funny point of view for a person to have mm. someone who has all the confidence in the world when they shouldn't. <laughs> and uh, so I wanted to play that. So I was like, well, who would be like the weirdest person to be that way? And I was like, well, the coolest people in the world, hands down, are film noir detectives. Yeah. No one is cooler than them. No one's cool than Bogey. No one's cool like the big sleep man. That like him and that. Um, Jack Nicholson in Chinatown. Right. I, th- I mean, even though he's a he's a screw up. Uh, who spoiler ultimately doesn't do that good of a job. <laughs> no. He still does piece it together and he's got a coolness about him. And that's what I love was the noir detective. Chinatown's one of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I grew up watching Edward G. Robinson noir. I love noir. Uh, double indemnity mm-hmm. was a direct influence on Cleve Dixon. So like, I'll set it in that world. So I wrote seven episodes of a series. Um, and we picked the three easiest to shoot because they all took place in the office. Gotcha. And that's what we focused on and made. But we had like ideas for like rear projection scenes with a car. We had like it. Right. The other scripts oh, are very great. fun. I've got to show you them sometime. I want to see them, definitely. Um, so I wrote it and I pitched it to Funny or Die. And they're like, we'll do it. We'll give you a budget of X. And so with a budget of X, we figured we could shoot three episodes. And, you know, being paid to shoot one, like, really cool presentation, we did three. Mm-hmm. And uh, our cast was James Urbaniak, who plays Dr. Venture on Venture Brothers, which is a fantastic cartoon with amazing continuity. Andre Vermeulen, who's on my sketch group, Oh Brother, at UCB. She's about to star in the new show, Angie Tribeca, on TBS. And she voices Rough Nut on How to Train Your Dragon. <laughs> yeah, DreamWorks right. is How to Train Your Dragon. And Lauren Lapkus, who's my teammate on Bangarang, who you can see in Jurassic World and the new TBS show Clipped. Um, so it's the three of them, which is a fantastic cast. I couldn't ask for a better cast. And we shot uh, on book the whole thing. And then anytime I shoot something, I love to allow for straying from it. This is like we shoot the script two or three times and get it line perfect. And then we go through, and it's like, all right, now just this section and anything you're feeling, say, and we'll deal with it. And then we'll come back to that line just to see what we can get in the moment. Uh, it was directed by my good friend, Noam Blyweiss, who has an amazing eye. And uh, he's great with riffing as well. So we, uh, that's what, how we did it, man, and we put it together. Um, got a sizzle reel up on Vimeo, too, if you want to see how all three episodes cut together. For your listeners who are interested in writing and like how things get pitched, one of the best ways to pitch a show is a thing called a sizzle reel. And what it is is like a quick summary of your show done visually, since a lot of executives don't like to read things and don't want to see things how you see them. Uh, you make a sizzle reel, which shows how it'll look. Usually you'll be paid to make it, but we made the sizzle for cleave off those three episodes and any other sizzle I've done, I've just shot on my own because mm-hmm. I don't want to wait for someone to give me money for it. I just want to do it. Yeah. Fantastic. And so that was all in a day. And then you cut it with, with gnome too, or did you do it all yourself? Uh, no, the editor on it, I, I believe, I think gnome edited one. Uh, and then Andy Fenberg edited on it as well. Um, 
and then Armando Macias did sound and he edited the sound and I did a lot of VO because it's a noir. So there is VO. I mm-hmm. recorded VO at his place and he, he mixed it in and we did a lot of alt lines for that. I wish I had a reel that was all my alt lines for there's a scene, uh, in the second episode, sorry for the spoiler <laughs> where, um, the focus is on a large chest, a woman's chest. And I had to, uh, do ad libbed, pervert lines for the voiceover and i want a reel of the shot of her beautiful face and the camera just pans down to her chest i want a while uh, of footage uh, a reel that is just it panning down with all the alts i did because i don't <laughs> so remember when you're all. just doing like wild lines you never remember what you say so mm-hmm. i'm sure it'd be a really funny clip and so i guess since then you were able to go you know basically full-time you you write and teach for yeah. a living you get you get to do that right yep um, I write and act and teach. That's all I do. And you, so then you were in the detective movie where we were in festivals this past year. Um, aside from your weekly shows at UCB, what, uh, what are you into and what's been happening for you? Um, doing a wee bit of commercial acting, um, some travel, been traveling a lot, and uh, writing things. I started a new YouTube sketch channel as well with friend of the show, Leslie Andrew Writings. Or Mr. Riddings, as I affectionately call him. <laughs> and uh, it's called Pitiful Creatures. So you just YouTube search Pitiful Creatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a website, too. We are pitifulcreatures.com. And it should have all the videos on it. Sure. We'll add a link to that. Um, and you're, I think you've done five of those so far, at least that are published. Yeah, we've put up five. Or actually, this may be our sixth six that now. we just released. But it's a total, like... We own our channel. We own all our content. Any song we make for it, it's going to be our own. Uh, it's 100% us, just completely independent. I write and act. Leslie directs and edits, but we have friends edit as well. Uh, friend of the show, Julia Edwards, has edited. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she got a gig. Edited one, and then a friend, Gina Gusto, has edited several. Um, they do like a rough, and they send it to Leslie, because ultimately it's Leslie's. Leslie He's has the look post shop. Yeah, one stop. Friend of the uh, show, Kyle Sanjin, helped with an edit on one. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's friends acting in it. It's friends shooting it. It's friends doing sound. It's friends uh, as the uh, extras and other <laughs> roles. It's all friends, man, just done for us. So it's completely free, which I, I think people uh, – Free as in no control. The only people in control of it are us, which I recommend everyone do. That's something that people ask me a lot in sketch class is like, well, how do you recommend getting in the door? How do you recommend it? I was like, well, you, what do you want to do? And they're like, I want to make content. I want to, I was like, then do it. That's the only thing that's stopping you. I was like, Justin, you had an idea for a feature. We went to Alaska and we made it. I have all these sketches I've written for years. I've never done anything with because I've been on a house team at UCB. I started just shooting them. Sketches that didn't get into shows, I started shooting. My Professor Blows Mind sketch that you'll see through the link here was a sketch I wrote for a house team at UCB in 2011 that the writers didn't dig. It never got into a read-through, and it was never done in a show and just sat on my hard drive for four years. And I shot it, and I've been getting a lot of really great positive feedback. And it's like, yeah, I forget that not everyone has the same sense of humor. I can tell you this channel is my sense of humor 100% unfiltered. Mm-hmm. That's 100% what I think is funny. Yeah. If I, I don't think it's funny, it will it. not go up. Yeah. I love the the mind blow one and go check it out. And also my other favorite one is the the selfish dying man who's <laughs> making all of these demands from his deathbed. Yeah, thank you. Um, 
a definitely, coward, a true coward. Yeah, go check it out. Um, we are pitiful creatures. Dot com. Yeah. Um, YouTube search pitiful creatures. That dying man sketch features Jacob Pitts, who was on uh, Justified for six or seven seasons, yeah. however many it went. I think seven. Yeah. One thing I noticed in kind of my year spent kind of away from L.A. recently and now coming back to it is is getting this perspective on this idea of the value of being able to finish things, right? Um, you, you come to L.A. and you, it's just millions of people who sit around and talking about things they want to be doing or yeah. they should be doing. Then a very, very small percentage of those people actually go out and shoot anything Possibly, maybe if they're very lucky and they have you know a lot of you know discipline and, and hard work and great friends, um, and then after that it's like I know so many people who have shot things that aren't finished and they aren't delivered, and like there's this whole like so much of the process where like getting to that finish line becomes like seems like farther and farther away, and it kind of scares people into just talking about things and like yeah I should go ahead and do that feature, but six years later I haven't done a feature, and that was kind of my own impetus for doing mine was that all I did since I moved to LA was talk about it and I never had gone out to do it um and that's what I love about pitiful creatures too is it's like we're not sitting around waiting like what are we waiting for when you're not doing something it's yeah. like is somebody going to show up on your doorstep and like give you money like what is actually happening that you're not doing it um and pitiful creatures is a great example where it's um you've set yourself up at least so far as like to be a regular producer of this content, right? Like every couple of weeks you want to put something new in the world and something that you've gone out and finished. Um, And it is just kind of, you find it very rare as the more people you get to meet, like how many people are finishing things. Um, And that in particular, I think is for people at this kind of, those early stages of a career if we end up having the the dream career of you know living and working in LA getting to create stories for people to watch um if you don't have that you know nepotism or a bunch of money or somebody like doing it for you you've got to do it for yourself right yeah and I do hear so much that I hear like oh so-and-so got on this show because of who they know so and I was like well I'm in the same boat man my dad is working class. He lives in a small town. My mom, same thing. I don't have any family here in Los Angeles at all. I moved here not knowing anyone. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I did. I had that moment where I realized, I was like, why, why do I need to and why would I rely on someone to pay for me to do these things I could do on my own? And like just waiting, like you said, waiting. The waiting kill is killer. It's like if you want to do it, just do it. You really have no excuse except you just won't. Things won't happen. And maybe that comes with like age. But I mean, some people come here super young and motivated. They bust, they bust ass and they get it done. Like Shia LaBeouf, man. That's a great example of that. Do it. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) You know, what's funny about that do it video and like all things considered, uh, maybe like five or six months ago, I did a show at UCB where we had to, it's a show called the blacklist, which is funny because my old comic group was called the blacklist. Right. Full circle again. (laughs) Had the show called the blacklist where you had to, pitch something you want to be removed from society and then the crowd would vote on it it's like a debate show uh-huh. and mine was saying you're going to do something and not doing it that was my point and, and awesome. I, I made yeah. a very passionate argument with a powerpoint about it and i ended by yelling at the crowd which by the way was uh, it was a late night show first first one so not a lot of people knew about it. six people in the crowd one of them was justin long <laughs> and i started screaming in the crowd i said if you want to do it just do it 
And I pointed someone in the crowd. I said, "What is your dream? What do you want to do?" And they're like, "I want to move to you know Canada." Or I went, "Go, go right now. Book a ticket. Move there. Find a job. There's nothing keeping you here. Do it. What do you want to do?" And a guy's like, "I want to be uh, you know I want to write a, a show." I was like, "Go, go home. F- figure out an idea. Find someone who wants to make it with you. Shoot it yourself." We're all capable of doing it now. Shoot it on your iPhone and edit it together in iMovie. You can make a show tomorrow. Do it. Mm-hmm. And then that Shia LaBeouf movie <laughs> came out, thing came out of him yelling, do it. And I was like, if I had someone record that show, I could have sent it to him and be like, you ripped off my idea. <laughs> yeah. You've done it again. <laughs> Which I, of course, would never do because I don't want to attack a celebrity. But uh <laughs> Just that idea of like, yeah, okay, I agree with you completely. There's nothing stopping anyone from doing anything. Mm -hmm. I always tell people, the second I get bored of what I'm doing here in L.A., or say I sell two shows and like I've made a ton of money, or I'm in a J.J. Abrams position, I'm gone. I'm not going to keep busting my ass and doing this and stressing over shows and movies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Take off. I'm going to go live a life of just doing what I want to do with my family. Why would I not like go live a year in like Italy? Go live a year oh, in yeah. Greece. Go live a year. It's like that's what I want to do because that's what I want to do. So that's what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. So right now I'm doing the work required to get to that. But if go. I get to a certain point and I haven't done it yet, cool. I had a blast in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had a fun like music career experiences. Uh, I was a musician before I was in comedy. I made a movie with my friends in Alaska that I could show my kids. I've made these great like shorts I could show them. What a cool thing. Imagine seeing your dad in like a black and white comedy sketch yeah. or like web series. That's fun. Yeah. And then I'll go live in some beautiful, beautiful town, teach something at a college, and surf on the weekends. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, what a horrible life that would be. <laughs> So you mentioned you were a musician. I'm curious. I'll just ask you about that real quick because um, this we also pursue. We have some music artists on this mm-hmm. show as well. Um, music, what do you play? What do you do? What do you like? Uh, I play guitar. I play bass. I play drums, but not well. And I grew up playing saxophone. And, uh, really? Yeah. From like 16 to mid-20s, I played in like punk bands. Okay. And uh, toured around a bit, recorded a couple albums. And uh, man, I loved it. That was a really fun part of my life. Is it something you would still do, or is it just kind of on hold because you're doing this um, other stuff? I, I had a friend who passed away, and he was uh, I was in a band with him, and he was like one of my biggest musical influences and like life influences. He hmm. taught me a lot, taught me a lot about being like a decent man. Uh, I remember he was the first person who ever said to me like, "Total honesty." He's like, "Just be as honest as possible." It's going to make a lot of people mad at you at times. Sometimes it's going to like and friendships he goes but you know nothing is served by being dishonest just be honest Mm -hmm. be upfront be be honest about who you are it's not just like to others but to yourself like know who you are and so he taught me that and uh we recorded and played music together and he passed away and when he passed away that hit me really hard and i played maybe again for like another year after that but it wasn't the same my heart wasn't in it so i stopped uh, I am in a band now. It's a two-man band, and we've been working on an album for seven years. <laughs> it's it's constantly being like revised and re-recorded. And right now, my other half of the band, Daniel Leva in Porterville, California, is like reworking the songs. It went from a fourteen-song album, which was fully recorded, to a five-song EP, which is being redone right now. Really? But it's been seven years. I didn't know that. Yep. Okay. Uh, but hopefully, we're hoping that comes out by the end of summer. So seven years of work, finally, oh, this gosh. album will come out. And then after that, I'm taking it. If he listens to this, great. Daniel, 
I'm taking it out of your hands and we'll record at a studio somewhere. Someone else will mix and master it and then we'll just put out I want my goal is once this first one comes out to put out an EP every six months. Wow. So I have a huge catalog by the end of my life. So you write music too. That's mm-hmm. you find that and yep. I've I used to myself too, I was in bands until twenty six was the last time I played in something based on the math of how old I am now. Um, but I used to play in bands with my brother all the time, and that's kind of like we spurred each other on it as far as musically goes. Yeah. Um, I, I always visited it today looking back now. I, I see I liked making music because to me it was the same thing I do in writing stories is that a song tells a story as well. Yeah. Um, and I think it borrows a lot of the same. Like you're still dealing with kind of how do you want somebody who listens to this to feel when they hear it or, or – Maybe it's not like so, what's the word? Like you don't plan to do it like that, but that's kind of, in hindsight, how you kind of see, at least I always saw in the music I wrote, is I wanted to write something and tell a story with my music and make somebody feel this way or that way yeah. based on... Elicit an emotion. Yeah. Regardless of if you know what the emotion is going to be, that it would make something. Like a piece of art. It's just mm. subjective. Mm. A song can make someone feel one way and another person feel another. Uh, <laughs> speaking of that, and if we're talking music, sure, we talk about like reacting in a different way to something as an uh, as art as from being a child to being an adult um and when i was a kid the song terrible lie by nine inch nails i was listening it got me pumped like nine inch nails got me super pumped when yes. i was a kid <laughs> like very intense music uh hardcore for like being a kid and listening to that um very like intense hard music and uh i never really gave much thought to the lyrics of the song terrible lie uh, which is like a song, him talking to God about like faith and being here and like what it feels to be alone on earth. And uh, it cut to me being an adult. I just recently saw Nine Inch Nails in Soundgarden at the Hollywood Bowl. Wow. Nine Inch Nails headline. It w- he was amazing. Like Trent Reznor is a showman, hmm. puts on a great show. And I think he does this. Like all his stuff is done with like the goal of, of getting a response out of you, making you feel something the staging, the way it was lit, like everything was just so amazing. And he plays terrible lie and it gets to the end of the song. And it was the lyrics, um, uh, like I'm on my hands and knees. You've taken everything. Uh, and the very last thing he says in that song, and he repeats it over is I want so much to believe. And that never hit me as a kid as it Whoa, does as an yeah. adult who has like conversations about faith and what you feel is out there with other adults. And like, as you get older and mortality starts to creep in, you're like, are we connected? Is there something after? Is there like, even if it's not God, just like us, you know, a connection between everything, all life, human, animal, plant, carbon, all of that connect in the universe. Uh, and then just to hear the line, I want so much to believe is like, boy, as an adult that comes off as desperate, and then it sent, it felt cynical as a kid and like kind of sneery, but as an adult, you get that. Whereas like, mm. I do want so much to believe. I want there to be like a better, bigger meaning to everything. Whether or not there is or not, he leaves that up to you. But still that line hit me and I didn't expect to get choked up in a Nine Inch Nails song <laughs> show at the Hollywood Bowl. Wow. And Great story. Me. No, that's... Um not to get too far down that path. I mean, we could do a whole podcast on those discussions as well, but um, it's something I wrestle with too. And I, and I consider all the time. I, it's kind of funny on the, um, in the way driving back from Boston to LA, I was listening to 
Pete Holmes, you know him and his podcast. Yeah, I know. Um, he gets people on his podcast, and you know they joke around for like half an hour or so, and then he goes for those kinds of questions, and he's just like, you know, so what is all of this? What are we doing? Yeah. And, uh, what do you think about after? You know, um, and just to get to here, I think I probably listened to like fifteen episodes on the drive, and like to hearing fifteen different, you know, celebrity type comedian people talking about what they think about things. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very kind of an adult question to start considering and going like wait a minute you know what i thought as a kid versus what i went through since then and where am i now very curious um I, and i think i would take my point of view on it would be to save it for my other podcast i'm wanting to start which i'll <laughs> announce now is for the sunrise robot network i'm wanting to launch a podcast called exposition which is kind of life stories told as kind of short story um entertaining pieces um but true stories you know so yeah. i've got a big outline of life stories that I would love to tell of myself and of, you know, anybody can be a guest and they can tell their own life stories as well. Um, kind of like Moth. I don't know if you've ever seen those. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, they just, you know. Uh, my friend Brian Finkelstein hosts okay. The Moth. There you go. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of like telling the stories each week is a different theme. Maybe you just kind of explore. Um, but that's something I'm super interested in too because to me that is all, still to me is all the same thing. It's all storytelling and it's mm-hmm. all an exploration of kind of, story that is happening all around us and in each other's lives and with friendships and um we create story we make story it's fake it's real whatever it's still all story that we're kind of have you ever read anything by grant morrison no i haven't you should he's a comic book writer and he recently like maybe not recently uh but he wrote a book with deepak chopra it's all about like (laughs) storytelling and its power Mm -hmm. and he did a panel at Comic-Con, which is a comic book convention they hold every year in San Diego with Deepak, where he's talking about, uh, he goes, Superman is real, as real as you or me. And everyone in the crowd is like weirded out. And he goes, well, let me explain. He goes, uh, you, you talk about someone, you know, they exist because you think about them in your mind, you know, their history, you know, where they've been, you know, where they come from, you know, where they're going, you know, all this stuff. So how is that any different from, a public consciousness about a fictional character. If Mm. we all think and feel hard enough about him, at what point does he become real? And I definitely know that's crazy, but it is (laughs) this idea of like storytelling as an extension of a human being where it's like, yeah, if you share your story like that, that makes you more human. That's why they Mm. have like, uh, when someone gets kidnapped, they say their name. So it's like, Oh, now the kidnapper identifies them as a human being. Mm. If I know your story, I'm more inclined to, have deeper feelings about you and towards you. So when people walk around in their daily lives and they don't have these interactions with people and they just see them as a being, it's like an, uh, a, an object, a wild animal. Just yeah, exactly. Nature, you have yeah. no like stake in them. So that's how it's so easy for people to be rude to each other or be angry in traffic <laughs> or rude. And like, exactly. but if you hear these stories of people, it's so much more humanizing and the word is humanizing, but, uh, I, now you're starting to get that discussion of like the spiritual thing of like connection, mm-hmm. a connection between everything. Mm-hmm. It's like, I love my dog so much and I know her story and I know like what she likes and doesn't like. So how is she any less important than someone who tells me a story? Mm-hmm. Connection, man. Storytelling. Yeah. I think that's it's the underline of all that is I always come back to it every day. It seems like it's just this word empathy that that's something where to understand another, you know, and other two words is, the beginning of of empathy and to say like hey we're we're in this thing together whatever we're in Mm -hmm. you know existence the universe expanding and just like 
we're all a part of that. And we're all in that this level somewhere. And empathy is what will keep us from. Well, empathy is what keeps us from killing each other and saying like survival of the fittest. Because yeah. if there were no empathy, it would be we would do that, right? But since we have stories and we know each other as people who have stories and pasts and wants and desires, you know, all of that we're talking about in reality. But I take that all into like writing a story for to film and to go create a, a world too. Like it's it's the same for me. I want all of my characters to feel that way too. Um, villain or not i think we kind of had fun discussions earlier today talking about like if films would just give (coughs) our movie villains even just one minute of a scene where we did get to empathize with them a little bit you know Um, empathy doesn't mean you agree with them and you're okay with everything that they are but at least you understand them right um yeah now in your story is more complex and it's not black and white, which is how things are not in the real world. So storytelling should reflect that. Mm -hmm. It's like, there's uh, you give your movie villain just, it's like, there's nothing behind his, his actions or his motivations. Like you don't care if he lives or dies. Mm -hmm. So it's like, well, what's, what stakes are those? I'd rather have, uh, I always tell people on improv, your unusual character, like the unusual person in the scene should have a justification. So the straight person in the scene, the normal character in the scene, mm-hmm. thinks, I don't agree with you, but I understand where you're coming from. And that to me is the key to not only playing someone who's unusual in something, but playing like a villain is where we can say as an audience, I don't agree with you, but I understand where you're coming from. And you care about the thing you're doing, which now makes you more relatable as a character, which makes you work more to me. Like, uh, Walt is the bad guy in Breaking Bad. Of course. 100%. Yeah. From the first episode, that's who he is. You don't agree with him, but you understand where he's coming from. Mm-hmm. And it's all the advent of the anti-hero, or the, uh, what is it? I don't want to say anti-hero. I guess it is anti-hero, but it's it's your Walter White, it's your Tony Soprano, it's your Don Draper. Where mm-hmm. you're like, you're not good people, but I understand why you do what you do. Mm-hmm. I've and, seen your background. I see. I've seen you be. You know, you are deserving of empathy in some regard, but you're still a bad person. Yeah. Or more recently, think, Cersei from Game of Thrones. <laughs> oh without gosh. spoiling anything for the listeners who haven't caught up. No, but yeah, I think a big part of that is we do see these characters at their worst, but they also give us a peek into the a peek into them privately, going like, "Man, I'm a." I did do a horrible thing and Mm -hmm. maybe I don't feel so good about that. Or like we get to see like regret. We get to see consequences to that. That's, you know, something we've been talking about today too, as we've been developing our, our series here is, you know, I'm, I'm interested in stories where characters do things and there's consequences and we get to see those consequences as well, rather than just cutting away to the next plot point. It's like, no, I want to see that real human moment. Cause for me, the empathy trumps getting through the plot of the story, you know? Um, yeah, because plot points are not. The plot any, points could be anything. Yeah, and, and that doesn't are, matter. You know, I mean that's it's exactly what you say. Plot. There's no feeling. There's no emotion. There's no. There's no depth to just the word plot and two plots, mm-hmm. which makes me laugh. Because I posted uh, a picture recently on Instagram. Uh, that's a description of last night's Game of Thrones episode, and it says, "Stannis marches. Danny is surrounded by strangers." Cersei seeks forgiveness. John is challenged. And that to me is a perfect example of those are plot points. Yeah. That's all plot. There's absolutely nothing in that that makes you feel anything. Mm-hmm. And that's what plot is. It's It doesn't make you feel anything. All very good stuff out there, listeners. I think it's very good. Very great conversation. 
Happy yeah. to have you Thanks, on the show. Dude. Of course. Um, we got to get back to writing. It, yeah, we do. Um, is there anywhere online people can find you, follow you? Are you open to that call? Sure. I'm on Twitter, at Adam S. McCabe, all one word, Adam S. McCabe. Uh, you can see my sketches on YouTube at Pitiful Creatures. And you can see me every Friday night at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in Los Angeles with a group called Bangarang. If you're from out of town and you ever come to L.A. and you're here on a Friday night, find me on Twitter and uh, hit me up and I will get you into our show. That's on me for being a loyal listener to PseudoCast. Yes. Thank you so much, Adam. Thank we'll you. See you next Appreciate time. it. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. As always, you can find the show notes at sunriserobot.net slash pseudoshow slash 26. And if you're in the L.A. area, for sure check out Adam's show, Bangarang, Friday nights at the UCB Theater. And head over to wearepitifulcreatures.com and check out his latest sketch work. Thanks, as always, to our loyal Patreons, Bruce Edwards and Andres Lanka. See you next time.